Uh, well, given the conversation about dogs that we uh, find in today's passage from Matthew chapter 15, I uh, can't help but recall the man who uh, knocked on the door of the Lutheran pastor one day and reported that his dog had died and asked the pastor if he could preside at a funeral service uh, for his beloved pet. And uh, the pastor uh, said sternly, no, that is not part of our tradition and even took offense at the request. Uh, to which the man said he meant no harm and was even planning to uh, make a $10,000 contribution in memory of his dog. Uh, to which the pastor said, you didn't say it was a Lutheran dog. <laughs> uh, well, more about the dogs a, bit, a little bit later on, but uh, let me say first off uh, and state the obvious that today's passage from Matthew chapter, chapter 15 gives us two very different and uh, seemingly contrasting scenes and episodes from the life and ministry of Jesus, uh, which raises the question of what they're doing together other than their uh, chronological sequence and why we should care. Uh, the context of scene one actually is established uh, in the words before those that you heard in the reading at the very beginning of Matthew 15, where a question is posed to Jesus by a group of Pharisees uh, who are the keepers of the tradition of the faith and believe that Jesus is a threat uh, to their tradition, so much so that they travel from Jerusalem all the way north to Galilee to interrogate him. And so this is a pretty big deal. And the question that they ask at the beginning of the chapter was, uh, why is it that your followers break the tradition of the elders and fail to wash their hands before they eat? Their concern, of course, was not physical hygiene, but it was uh, spiritual corruption and contamination because uh, in the tradition, if you came into contact with a person who was uh, unclean or uh, defiled or impure in some way, that your food would then become contaminated and then so would you be as you ate it. Well, Jesus hears this uh, question uh, which comes to him like a curveball and he basically hits it out of the park where he says to the Pharisees at the beginning of the chapter, uh, well, yeah, well, he doesn't say, well, yeah, but he, he does say to them, and uh, why do you uh, fail to take care of your parents in order to make an offering to God when taking care of your parents is an offering uh, to God and also obedience to one of our Ten Commandments? And with that, Jesus then refers to them as a bunch of hypocrites. And he says, you know, Isaiah was talking about you when he said that these people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far uh, from me. And your rules are nothing more than the, the, the traditions of men. Uh, all of which is to say, uh, don't be messing with Jesus in an argument because he will take you down. And then with that, uh, the curtain rises on the passage that you uh, did here just a moment ago when Jesus takes that exchange and explains to a group of bystanding followers that what defiles a person is not what goes into them, but rather what comes out of them. In other words, what makes a person unclean or unholy uh, is not whether or not they keep and abide by a ritual or a tradition, one of which is washing hands out of many, many others uh, but rather being defiled has to do with what comes out of you, with the things in your life uh, that are not of God by the way you live your life. Conversely, uh, keeping the traditions and keeping the rituals 
of the faith, including hand washing, for example, do not keep and make you clean, uh, even though Jesus is not repudiating, repudiating those traditions, uh, because the fact is uh, that we have a lot of them, and that's actually a good thing. But he is saying that faith is first and foremost an activity of the heart. It is first and foremost a relationship with God, which is then expressed in the things that we say and the things that we do, including our rituals, our traditions, and the way that we live our lives. And so that's why when a couple comes and says, uh, we want to have our wedding at St. Andrew, we say, well, we're happy to talk about the wedding, but we also need to talk about the marriage. Because the marriage is the relationship that gets expressed in the ritual known as the wedding. Or when somebody from outside the congregation wants to schedule a baptism. We talk about the ritual, but we also have to talk about the relationship with God, with the family of God, which fundamentally is what baptism is really all about. And all of that's good. But then, uh, as you heard, the scene changes in Matthew 15, and all of a sudden, if you'll pardon the expression, the sandal is now on the other foot. As Jesus makes his way north from Galilee to get away from the Pharisees, and he moves northward into a, a region that they would never go, known as Tyre and Sidon, which were the names of two Mediterranean coastal cities. And uh, it was inhabited by a number of Gentiles, including people known as Canaanites. Now, the Canaanites were uh, people who fled the land of Israel when the children of Israel came and first inhabited the Promised Land. And by reputation, the Canaanites were then uh, irreverent, uh, irreligious, immoral, unbelievers, pagans, except for this one woman who hears that Jesus is in the region of Tyre and Sidon, and she goes to Jesus and she kneels down before him and says, Lord, son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is afflicted by a demon. Now, when, when that woman calls Jesus Lord and son of David, that tells you two things, one of which is that Jesus is already, you know, very well known at this point, even beyond his own borders. And when she calls him son of David, it tells you that she believes that Jesus just might be the promised Messiah of Israel. And so you never know in what unlikely place you might actually find faith. But what results then is a, another conversation that frankly is even more cringeworthy than the one that Jesus just had with the Pharisees in the previous episode or scene from his life and ministry. Where after he first tries to ignore this woman and then hears from his own followers that he should just get rid of her, send her away. He makes this very troubling statement when he says, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, and by implication, not to the Gentiles, certainly not to the Canaanites, and not to this woman who kneels before me. And then things go from bad to even worse, and this is where the dogs come back into the story. As Jesus looks at this woman, and says, it isn't fair to take the children's food and throw it to the docks. Which causes you to stop and say, wait a minute. Did Jesus 
just call this woman a dog? I mean, is that really in the Bible? Somebody came to St. Andrew for help, and I called him a dog. I think the elders would take a dim view of that. To make matters even worse, in that time, in that society, in that context, the term dogs was actually an epithet that was commonly directed to and described Gentiles, including Canaanites. Although some Bible translators hasten to point out that the kind of dog Matthew is referring to here, uh, to here is uh, kind of the common house pet rather than the wild dogs that would roam the streets, as if to make it a little less hostile. But hey, still, what's going on here? And how is it, by the way, that, that this one who called people to, to witness to people of all nations, the one who himself sat down with all kinds of sinners and even with unbelievers throughout the course of his ministry, the one who just got done castigating uh, the Pharisees for uh, preferring their own traditions and their boundaries to love, now all of a sudden turn around and act, if you'll pardon the expression, like a Pharisee. And if Jesus really is the savior of the world, why is it that he says, I came only for the lost sheep of the house of Israel? And so if I was Matthew's editor, I think I would have probably said to him, hey, why don't we just scratch this part out, okay? Leave it out. But of course, that's not what happens. And, and the answer to that last question, when you think about it a little bit, does kind of make some sense. Given the fact that Jesus was born into the house of Israel, and he came into this world in fulfillment of Jewish prophecy. And if Jesus does not establish himself as the promised Messiah of Israel, then his sacrificial love, his message of freedom and peace and forgiveness and hope would never have made it beyond the house of Israel and into the rest of the world, including the Gentiles, which was always part of God's plan of salvation and for which Jesus demonstrated that fact repeatedly in the context of his ministry to people. With respect to why it is that Jesus called this woman and her people dogs, well, the commentaries offer a number of possible explanations, like, you know, he was uh, testing her to see if her faith was the real deal, or he was kind of teasing her or kidding her, or, or because Jesus was truly human and as well as truly divine, you know, he was having some sort of a bad day. All of which are not compelling to me or convincing, except to say that for whatever reason, Jesus knows that people referred to Gentiles, including Canaanites, as dogs. And he wants this woman to know that he knows it. And so, uh, with respect to the answer, whatever it is, what we find really kind of engaging and amazing is the woman's response in which she does not call out Jesus for his remark. Uh, she does not argue uh, with him. She does not defend the Gentiles or the, or the Canaanites. And uh, she does not uh, dismiss the way in which God's plan of salvation is somehow being gradually unraveled and accomplished in this world. On the contrary, she seems to understand it perfectly. The children are the people of Israel. 
The dogs are the immoral, irreligious, unbelieving pagans. The food is the grace and the presence of Jesus. All she knows is that she needs him. She craves his help. And so when Jesus looks at her, maybe it was with a wink of an eye or a smile on his face, or just to emphasize her inferiority. And he says to her, it isn't fair to take the children's food and throw it to the dogs. This woman also hits the curveball, and she makes a home run. When she responds to Jesus and she says, you are exactly right. It isn't fair. I'm not of your religion. I'm not of your tradition. I'm not of your country. But even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from the master's table. And that is the moment of truth in the passage. When Jesus marvels at her, he praises her faith. He casts out the demon. The daughter is healed. And the passage ends with Jesus acting like everything but a Pharisee. And so here we have these two uh, very different and in some ways contrasting scenes and episodes from the life of Jesus, both of which find him moving outside the boundaries of acceptability and to enter into places of spiritual darkness. In the first scene, he challenges the Pharisees, his own people, the keepers of the tradition. And he finds their self-righteous faith to be frankly crummy. That's with an M. After which then he turns to the bystanding crowd and he says, you know what matters is what comes out of your heart for the glory of God. What matters is a relationship with God that expresses itself in, in things that, that honor God, that reflect his presence and grace in this world. In the second scene, Jesus is the one who is actually challenged by a woman with whom he should have had nothing to do, who cries out to him from the depth of her soul who requires him to step across the boundaries of isolation between Canaanite and, and Israelite, and who reminds him that even crumbs from God's table of grace would be a sumptuous feast for her, more than enough to transform her whole life. That is the faith that is worthy of the praises of God. And so that Canaanite woman's faith is also crummy, but this time with a B. And as a result, Jesus praises her faith. The demons are gone. New life begins. There's another great story uh, that emerges from Luke 23 and the story of uh, the thief on the cross who was crucified next to Jesus, except that unlike Jesus, of course, he was actually guilty of his crimes. After the crucifixion, the thief on the cross stands at the gateway to paradise. And the keeper of the gate looks at him and says to him, you, you are a criminal. You never kept the laws of God. 
You never observed the traditions of faith. You never went to the temple. You never made a sacrifice. You hardly know who Jesus even is. Why should you come into paradise? The thief on the cross had only one thing to say, one answer that he could give. As he replied to the gatekeeper and said, Jesus told me I could come. And so I'm glad uh, that Matthew uh, kept, by God's grace, this unusual passage enshrined uh, in his gospel. And I do hope that they will help you and me and all of us together to find a God-honoring, grace-motivated relationship with the things that we do outwardly, the traditions that we keep as a way of glorifying God and the boundaries that we cross to take that grace every person, everywhere, no matter who they are or what their background may have been for the glory of the one who loved us from a cross, who calls, cries out to us to come to him, who hears us when we cry out for his mercy and his grace and who assures us that in him the final words are forgiveness and freedom and hope and life forever in Christ our Lord. And so, wash your hands. Remember your baptism. And take your crummy faith and go for the glory of God, the healing of the world, and the joy of your life. Amen.